0: Did you bring it? Good, good. I could get the pedestal. Oh. And they had to dig him out of the basement, so there you go. Alright. Alright, thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Alrighty, alrighty. To, 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 to. <coughs> to you and all your family. Your neighbors and your friends, may all your days be happy with the joy that never ends. Stop that. It's a David Cassidy song. If anyone hears that, they'll think I'm one of them. Run, run, Rudolph. Run, run, Rudolph. Ow. No legs. I got it. I got it. Jeez, Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows when you've been sleeping. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Close enough. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Run, 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 run That's my commander in chief hat. No, that's for me. Oh well. Good enough. There we go. There we go. There we go, we're already. Oh, sorry. Um <laughs> What am I doing? I, I'm, I'm working out my faith. Um, because God and I are close. We matter. Uh, he matters. Um, oh, but by the way, who is that? Oh, that's, that's God. Don't look at me like that. That's, that's, of course I believe in God. I mean, I'm not some degenerate. I mean, I grew up with, with morals. And you've got to have God in, in your corner. Um, life's hard, and, and it's tough. And, and without God, I mean, you can't get much done. Now, see, you're looking at me with those judgmental faces when I say that that's God. Well, what does your God look like? I I bet for some of you he's nothing more than a, a potluck supper and a free meal. I'm just kidding with that. It is interesting. It's an important question. What does God look like to us? What does God look like to you? Um, What does he mean to us? What does he mean to you? If somebody were to see how you viewed God, what would they think? If somebody were to see how um, how you treat your relationship with God, what would they see? Uh, there's, there's a great quote um, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer I came across this week, and I don't know if you'd be able to read it. It says, um, it should be, live your life as a Christian should make non your life as a Christian, excuse me, should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Uh, Bonhoeffer uh, thinks that we should live our lives in such a way that when others look at us relating to God, it should make them question their disbelief in God. So the question is when, when people look at you and they look at the way that you look at God, and they look at the way that you relate to God. When they look at what God means to you, what do they see? Does he even matter? I mean, is God just a, um, a pretense for a, a free meal at a potluck supper? Um, is, is is God uh, uh, an important job in the church because you got nothing better to do, or, or maybe you're in a dead end job and you don't feel overly important? So you know, go to church, get a job, do something for God, look like a hero. Uh, is is God some principle or a concept that that makes you feel good when? you're emotionally not feeling so well? Is God kind of like a, a, a rabbit's foot? You know, he's there, he's in your back pocket, and if you get in trouble, you know where to go, you, you know how to call on his name, you, you just kind of pull him out of the basement. What does he look like? This morning, we're gonna finish our series called Majoring on the Minors. And we're going to finish with the last minor prophet. um, The prophet Malachi. The name literally means the messenger. Malachi came to confront the people of God. To confront them on how they viewed him. How they related to him. Him, How they interacted. What he meant to them. Uh, Malachi is the last book that you'll find in the Old Testament. And uh, it was the last book written by the prophets. In fact, Nehemiah and Malachi were probably the very last books. Um, as you know, what we had kind of talked about the history before. Israel was split in two because of uh, their sinfulness. And it wasn't very long before the Assyrians came in and invaded the north of Israel, took over. And so all that remained of Israel is what was Judah in the south. And then eventually, because of Judah's selfishness and sinfulness, the Babylonians came and, and took them. And then the Persians came and took all of them. Now the one good thing that happened with the Persians is when they finally consumed all of Israel, they began to let Israel alone as a nation. In fact, they had taken the people that were dispersed throughout all the different um, uh, countries and nations and allowed them to come back and allowed them to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall around the city. And so when the Persians took over, it was a good breather for the nation of Israel. And so Nehemiah, like many of the minor prophets, was a part of that. Nehemiah came and he preached because the temple was built and yet the wall had fallen down around it, around the city. And Malachi came right after everything pretty much was built. Malachi came, though, to speak to the people of Israel because here's what happened. Once Nehemiah had motivated the people and got everyone going, and once Ezra the scribe came and, and, and found the law and revealed it to them again, and the people had repented and there had been a short period of revival, it all kind of fell flat. Once everything was back the way it was supposed to be, the people just went about their business doing life as they used to do it. And so God sent Malachi to go and to confront them on their sinfulness. Now one of the interesting things about Malachi, one of the things that always stands out, you can't read a commentary on Malachi without it being noted, that after Malachi spoke, after his prophecy, there was 400 years of silence. God didn't send another prophet after Malachi. You can say that God didn't speak to the people again for 400 years. It's what we call the intertestamental period. The period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact the only really Old Testament prophet that came you might say was John the Baptist. Because he came as a precursor Preparing the way for Christ. But John the Baptist is spoken of in the New Testament and he's found in the Gospels, part of the coming of the New Covenant. So we really talk about Malachi as being the last Old Testament prophet. And after him, nothing. For 400 years, God just stayed silent. But he didn't stay inactive. For those times that God was preparing for the coming of his Christ. Preparing to do for the the people what they couldn't do for themselves. Preparing for God to come incarnate and demonstrate his love and bring their salvation once for all forever. This morning... We're going to look at this passage because it's going to help us to discern what happens to us that our view of God can end up like this. What happens to us that the way that we relate to God can look like we don't have much of a relationship with God that can make us feel like deep down inside we don't have much of a relationship with God. And so as we look at Malachi, as we look at this last minor prophet, we're going to learn a very important truth about what happens to believers when they begin to drift, when their image of God begins to suffer and their relationship with God begins to suffer with it. And so we're going to begin this morning in Malachi chapter one. I'm going to kind of give you a bird's eye view of the book. We're going to jump around a little bit, but hopefully it'll make sense. Okay, we have that right? All right. Um, Verse one, Malachi begins this way, and I love this, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, and this is a problem to proclaim. Um, let me just stop there. Malachi begins with a prophecy, and the prophecy is this. I love you. Now, just think about that for a minute. What better note could you get from God? What better note could you get from anyone? I mean, those of you who have college students who are away, I mean, when you get a text, that just simply says, hey, mom, hey, dad, I love you. (laughs) All of those tens of thousands of dollars are worth it, aren't they? You keep waiting for the text. We want to hear that. In the midst of all that we've heard, now we hear God saying to his people, coming right out of the gate. This is my prophecy, and it begins with this. I love you. In fact, that's, what, that's the theme of the whole Bible in one sense. God's promise to love us no matter what. From Genesis to Revelation. Because that's what God does. God is love. That's his, that's his person, and his deal is he loves. And everything you read in the Bible is, is, has its center in God loves you. Everything that God says and does is based on that truth and reality. He loves you. Now, look what we read. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Now, One of the things that you see in Malachi, it's kind of cool. Malachi speaks this word of prophecy to the people, and as he does, he anticipates their questions. And so he shares the truth that God wants him him to share, and then he answers the questions that he knows they're going to ask, that are on their mind, that are blocking them. And so right away, as soon as they hear the words from God, I love you, they say, how have you loved us? Wow. I- imagine if, if you said to your spouse tonight, I love you. And they said, Pfft, Really? How have you loved me? Matt, have you said that to your kids and they they looked at you like, give me a break. You're the worst parent in the world. How in the world do you love me? I mean, who says something like that? But when God says, I have loved you, they have said, how have you loved us? And so right off the bat, God gives three examples. First example is this. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, let me stop you right there because that sounds kind of nasty. God loved the one and hated the other? Well, let me explain that a little bit. God is proving his evidence of his love by saying to the nation of Israel, I love you. In fact, I chose you. And I chose you when you were unchoosable. That's not a word. No, kids, don't use that this week. I loved you when, when you weren't even in the running. Why? Well, uh, because Jacob and Esau were twins. But Esau came out of the womb first. Not Jacob. And and, and, and you just got to understand, and, and, and the culture, in the Hebrew culture, this was a big deal. You're firstborn. I mean, it was such a big deal that yeah, if they suspected there were twins, man, they were, there were people waiting outside of the womb, waiting for the first one to come out with a pen to say, okay, who's going to be the first one? Because it matters. Got to have a firstborn. Can't have two of them. And Esau came out. Now, Jacob came out right after him, grabbing his heel, trying to be the firstborn. Tell me kids aren't evil. Um, but he wasn't the firstborn. Too late, so sorry, bye bye, you don't qualify. But God was making a point. My love is so powerful that you know what? I overrid, overrode the rules. I chose to love the one who wasn't even in the running and really probably the more evil of the two because Jacob was a weasel. He did every. I mean, he stole his brother's birthright by, by selling him a cup of porridge for it when his brother was hungry. And he said, can I have some? He said, only if you give me your birthright. And then he faked his father out with his mother's help to get his father to give him the birthright. Jacob was a weasel. And so when God says, here's one of the evidences, I, I chose you, I called you, I elected you, when you were even weren't electable, to the point that anyone around would have just simply said this, God loves Jacob and must hate Esau. Because I mean, how else could it be? He went for the one who wasn't even the runnings, and he made him to be the leader of his chosen people. He made him to be the pivotal person called Israel. So therefore God must love Jacob and, and hate Esau. It wasn't that God said, you know, I just hate Esau. I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. And Jacob, I love Jacob. Jacob's a good guy, good boy. Esau, bad. No. No, they were both bad. God chose Jacob. And so he's saying, you wanna know how I loved you? I chose you when you weren't even in the running. I chose you when you didn't even qualify. I chose you when to the point it made Esau look like I hated him. Because that's the natural conclusion. How did I love you? And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left its inheritance to the desert jackals. In other words, and I made sure because Esau, which became uh, the leader of a country back then we called Edom that was constantly on Jacob's back, constantly on the back of the people of Israel, he says, I loved you so much that I fought off your enemies. Next slide. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. I will make sure that nothing comes in the way of my blessing. Okay. So God gives us evidence. I loved you, I called you, I protected you, <coughs> and I have ensured you throughout history. How can you say, how have I loved you? Here's the principle I want you to take out of Malachi. The question of God's love is really about the condition of our hearts. The question of God's love is really about the condition of our heart. (coughs) See, when we start questioning God's love, it means that there's something wrong with the condition of our heart. It means that we've stopped seeing who he really is, and we stop seeing what he's been doing for us. We question his love because he's not doing what we think he should do. Because we say things like, if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow me to experience his pain right now. If God really loved me, he wouldn't allow me to lose the person that I lost. If if God really loved me, he would help me to find a spouse. Or if God really loved me, he would help my spouse to fall off a cliff. Um, All depends on perspective, I guess. Um, If God really loved me, he would help my children to make me proud. If God really loved me, he would he'd help me to get the right job. If God really loved me, he would make life easier for me. You see, we do all this stuff. And, and because God doesn't play the way we want him to play, we come to the conclusion of the people of Israel. That if God really loved me, He'd do what I ask him to do. And because he doesn't do those things, guess what? Our, Our thinking becomes more distorted. Now we're convinced he doesn't love me. Because we think he should be doing this, he isn't doing this. I've got a case against God. The problem is, we don't put God on trial. When we do, we just put ourselves under a whole bunch of trials. When we stop believing that God loves us, life becomes hard. It becomes a desperate struggle where we're on our own trying to make things happen. Hope goes right out the window. beauty disappears and love goes right with it. When we think because God doesn't act the way we want him to act, that he doesn't love us, we lose all understanding of love. When we believe that God loves us, we can look around and we can see it all over the place. No matter what happens to us, no matter what pain I'm experiencing, no matter what loved person I lose, no matter whether I have a spouse or I don't have a spouse, no matter whether I'm lonely, no matter whether I'm struggling financially, If I believe, it doesn't matter, God loves me, then the possibilities are endless. Then I have every reason to rest in his love and know that love doesn't abandon. I have every reason to know that I'm not looking hard enough because if I do, I'm going to see love all over the place. Because the deal is, God loves you. He has a plan for you. All you have to do is just do the next right thing as you walk in his love. But see, that was the problem. They approached God and they had already decided he doesn't love us. Why? Because he doesn't do for us what we want him to to do. And so God looks like this. Yeah, I believe in him, but I don't believe much about him. Yeah, I I might give lip service to him, but I'm really angry at him And I don't think he's either that powerful or that he cares about me. So I I keep him around because, you know, who knows? But day to day, this is what he looks like to me. And this is how I relate to him. Yeah, I, I, I do the minimal. I try to make sure that I can say, yeah, me and God, and so I can feel a little bit better, but I'm not counting on anything from him. I mean, look at him. What can he do for me? Because that's what I've created. And see, that's the problem. When we start to question God's love, we have already gone down the wrong road. And I know what, what some of you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that's not fair. I mean, there are people who, they're going through real legitimate pain. They've lost somebody they care about. How can you get up there and, and now heap guilt on them by saying that questioning God's love means that there's something wrong with the condition of their heart? Because there is. It's, it's understandable to have pain. It's understandable to ask, God, why? I don't understand. But the minute I start questioning his love for me, whether I'm in pain and I think I have a good reason to question, I just made life harder for myself. I made the, bigger, the problem bigger for myself. I made my life darker. It's it's not about that God doesn't care about your pain, he does. In fact, he cares about your pain so much that in the midst of your pain, he wants you to know, I love you. As a therapist, there are two things that I know that bring peace of people calm. One is when they say to me, Doc, am I crazy? And I say, no, you're not crazy. And, and they go, oh. and Then they usually say, how do you know? Crazy people don't worry about being crazy. But more importantly, the second thing is when I say to them, look, God loves you. I know this is hard and this is painful. God loves you and God has a plan for you it'll be okay because he doesn't abandon his people. But when you believe that, when you believe that he does, the world gets turned upside down. Look, look what we read. Uh, go forward. It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name, but you ask how we have shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar, but you ask how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, it is, not, is that not wrong? Try offering them to the governor. Now what he's saying is this. Once you believe I don't love you then you're going to stop honoring my name and your worship is going to become weak and petty it's it's going to look sad Now, now why does God care about their worship? Why does God care about whether they bring a diseased animal or not? Yeah, God doesn't, that's not the deal. God doesn't need their, God owns all of it. But what God is saying is, when you dumb down who I am and you dumb down my name, and particularly you priests, guess what? You act that way towards me. And you, and you condemn yourselves. You move yourselves further. That's why he says, look, if you did that with a governor, what would happen? Off with your heads. And because he doesn't love you. The minute we believe that God doesn't love us, his name drops down. And so, yeah, God is somebody who, we use as a pretense to go to church, but it's about church. It's about maybe feeling good. Maybe it's about a potluck supper. Maybe it's, but it's not really about God. It's not really about honoring Him. How many of you sing when we sing? I've, who was over here making all the hand gestures? Oh yeah, man, powerful stuff. I'm the, I can see him in the corner of my eye just. When we're singing, he's singing and he's praising and he's, he doesn't have to do that. It's not part of being Baptist. In fact, I think you can be tarred and feathered as a Baptist for doing it. Um, What does that tell me? God's name matters to him. I mean, his body is animated in motion. How much does God matter to you? Is he holy and majestic? Do you see him and do you speak his name in awe? Or does he look like this to you? And see, here's the deal. You can just see this progression downwards. Next slide. No? If you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. But you have turned from the way, and by your teachings have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. Now, why is God talking about cursing? Because he's saying this. If you, particularly you leaders who are supposed to speak the truth, if you're supposed to speak the truth of Levi, the priest, which was that God has come to bring you life and he's come to bring you peace. And if you dumb down who I am, you dumb down what I've come to bring. And you'll just twist the truth. And I won't let you do it. Because I love you so much I will curse you to get you to turn around and come back to me. Does God curse his people? Does God make bad things happen to his people? Yes, he does sometimes. Now, I'm a firm believer that majority of bad things that happen instantly usually happen (laughs) because we cause it. But eventually when God causes us, it's because we've gone so far out in left field His love wants to bring us right back. And he says to the priests, to the teachers, yeah, particularly you, I will curse. Because when you speak, when you distort the truth, when you distort my love, you cause others to stumble. And I can tell you as a pastor, and I would tell any young pastor coming to ministry, Woe to you if you don't preach the gospel and you don't preach it correctly because you will become the stumbling block for many people and God will judge you harshly for it. Woe to you Sunday school teachers if you twist the word of God because God will not allow you to distort his word which is his love. When God's word becomes distorted, move on, next slide. So I have caused you to be despised because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. What happens when the word of God gets distorted? Justice gets distorted. The law gets distorted. How we treat people gets distorted. We we start to show partiality. And here's what happens. When justice in society gets distorted, intimacy in the family begins to become destroyed. Why do elections matter? Why? Well, they matter in the sense that when we vote for people, we speak about what the desires of our hearts. And when we Appoint leadership, whether in a nation or in a, in a church, it's going to come back to either bless us or hurt us. In fact, look what we read Judah has desecrated the, the sanctuary of the Lord, the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. What happens? When you believe that God doesn't love you, you will go out and create idols that you believe will love you. Pornography. You know, what is pornography, especially for women, I'm sure you're thinking, what's the deal with pornography? I mean, what's wrong with these guys? You wanna know what pornography is? It's a distortion of intimacy. It's guys who who, who don't feel loved, and so they look at these pictures of these women and they, and they fantasize about how these women are all over them sexually because that to them is love. And so it's just this ongoing fantasy of being loved. But it's distorted because when love becomes distorted, it becomes distorted sexually. It becomes distorted in intimacy. You know how you can judge a cult? Very simple. You, you can judge them by the distorted spirituality and distorted sexuality. And that's what was happening to these people. They were becoming cultic. Now they had moved away from God's word so they just kind of created their own distortions because God doesn't love us so we have to find love somewhere else. So we'll find it in the women of false gods. Then what happens? Well, look. Next slide, please. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on you, offering or or accepts uh, on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now that distortion of intimacy becomes the destruction of the family all because they didn't believe that God loved them and because they didn't believe that God loved them they no longer honored his name because they no longer honored his name. They distorted his word and twisted it and when they did that, justice went out the window and when justice went out the window people treated each other awfully and when they treated each other awfully, it began to filter down and to the very intimacy of their family. And now it all fell apart. Why? Because when you don't believe that God loves you, the question isn't his love, it's the condition of your heart when you believe he doesn't love you, life falls apart and you become desperate and you become depraved. That's just the way it is. That's why I love it when, when Malachi starts. God loves you. That's the bright shining light and when you walk away from it, everything goes dark. So, What's the answer? Now, this is interesting. If you're a trustee, you'll love this answer. He says this, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God responds, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. See, everything's about money, isn't it? Yes, it is for us. Not for God. Why does God, when he says, let's turn this whole thing around and let's begin with your money? Because God wants your money. He needs it. You know, upkeep in heaven is very, very expensive. No. Because where your money is, your heart is. See, when my, in my heart, when God looks like this, there's a lot lacking. And I'm not too particular. And I'll give, but it's, I'll give the scraps. He won't get my, my favorite hat or my favorite coat. He, he won't get anything really important to me. And so he says, look, you wanna turn this around? You wanna change the condition of your hearts? Let's go right after the selfishness. You wanna know how much somebody loves God? Look at their checkbook. That's not a pitch. Look, I'll take off my pastor. I'm just talking to you as friends. It's not a pitch. It's just the truth look at your checkbooks and you'll see all the thousands and thousands of dollars that you have spent on yourself. You know what's depressing? Amazon is depressing. You know why Amazon is depressing? Because they track all your orders. And so the other day I was looking for a new pair of glasses. Uh, I bought a pair of glasses I really liked. they break breaking the fat. But I couldn't remember the name of them and so I went back through my history and, and looked at all this, this stuff, you know, trying to find those glasses in my history. And when I'm reading my history, I'm like, oh, my God. Junk. Junk. You bought that? I don't even know what that is. You bought that? That's stupid. Yeah, that, I mean... Thousands we can spend on ourselves. But giving to God, it's a sign of our passion. It's a sign of our commitment. It's, it's our hope in expanding God's kingdom. We want to give, why? Because God gives. For God so loved the world that he gave is one and only son. It matters. In fact, here's the thing that blows my mind. Next slide. You are under curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, and you've heard me probably say it, but it's the only time in the Bible God ever says test me says the lord almighty and see if i will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not not be room enough to store it in fact not only that i will preserve I, i will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit he's saying test me in this and you'll see that i will pour out such a blessing that you won't have room to receive it in fact I will make sure that what you have doesn't get devoured. You see, God never calls us to do anything that he isn't willing to outdo us in. Why? Because he loves us. That's what love does. (laughs) Love gives more than it takes. See, here's the deal. If you want to know how much you love God, If you want to know how passionate you are, it's got to show up in every area of your life. And one of those first areas, it's got to show up in your checkbook. This is not a push for giving, this is a push for faith. Because you want to know something? What I give to is what I'm passionate about. When I'm passionate about God's church and His kingdom, it's not going to be lip service. You're going to see the commitment in that. This a wonderful story of a man who was treasure, a treasurer of his church, and he just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. He was tired of being treasurer. And so they were looking for someone to be treasurer, and Nobody would take it. I mean, it's a hard job. And, and finally, one man said, look, I'll, I'll take the job. Uh, he was a guy who, who owned a grain store, and so people knew him, and they trusted him. And so he said, I'll take the job, but under two conditions. First condition is, I don't account for what I'm doing for one year. You got to just leave me alone. No reports, nothing. Just leave me alone. Um, And the second condition is, you can't ask me any questions. Well, being hard up, they said, "Okay." So a year goes by, and he goes up before the church, and he says, "Your two hundred twenty thousand dollar debt has been wiped away. Missions has been increased by." 20%. And we now have $25,000 in the bank. And they looked at him like, how did you do that? He said, well, very easily. Every time you came in to buy grain from me, I withheld 10% of your order. And I, Turn that into cash. And I paid the bills of the church. See, as a pastor, I always, I always say, God, why do we have to struggle with bills? It's so unnecessary. But more than that, it's so limiting to the heart of each person. So how does God call them back to change the condition of their hearts by giving. And number two, you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements and going before going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? You want to change your heart? change what you do with your wallet, change what you do with your time. You love God, you'll serve God. You'll do what matters to him. You won't have to ask God, how have you loved us? Because you'll see him show up every day as you show up and care for others. He'll care for you, in fact, we read this. On that day, and he's talking about the great day of judgment, when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a Father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will go again and see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So, Here's the deal. God loves you. And you've got to believe that. And if you do, you'll become passionate around that. And you'll see all the ways that he has loved you. And you will give yourself fully to him. And others, as Bonhoeffer said, will look at your relationship with God and it will cause them to question their disbelief. Or God will look like nothing more than a free meal at a potluck supper He'll look like nothing more than you going to be inspired because you feel bad at church, but live no differently than the world. God will look like nothing more than the worst of what you have and the worst of what you believe. And so I I just want to say to you this morning, If you're here because you love God and you are fully in, that's awesome. If you're here and you're here because you don't know, just my parents went to church so I go to church. It's good for you to come but it's not gonna change your life. It's not gonna change the condition of your heart. It's not gonna change what goes on in your behavior. It's not gonna change what goes on in your relationships. In fact, you're gonna even begin to think, if there is a God, he must hate me because nothing's changing. and then you'll believe that. But it's only when you believe that he loves you, everything changes. For 400 years, God didn't say another word to the people. For 400 years, that was the thought he wanted them to ruminate over and over again. I love you and I want you to love me. Because when you do, great things will happen. And you will feel loved. And you will see the power of love. And you will share love with the people around you. And that's the word 400 years that Jesus came to give all over again, God loves you. Now come and receive and come and follow. Let's join our hearts in prayer.